Amen. Good morning. So my question for you this morning is, how can you tell if someone's a Christian? This is a a real question. Because in our culture, it's easy to say that I grew up in church, I prayed a prayer, I was baptized at this uh, one moment in my life. But how do we know if that person is really a Christian? And what marks the gospel bearing fruit in someone's life, even if there's a lot of other craziness going on? Because as broken, unfinished people, we know that there may be fruit in our lives of the gospel, but we're a mess sometimes. And especially in a world that is less and less ashamed of their hate for Christ, it's getting easier to tell of those who are not ashamed of their love for Christ. So many people uh, get bent out of shape about the culture moving further and further away from what we would understand as Christian. But I actually praise God for it because now the believers stand out. Now we actually have something to stand up for and there is less continuity between the world and the church. So like a farmer who looks closely in the spring at the first signs of life, Coming out of the deadness of winter, we should know what to look for. What are the signs of life? And when we see them, we should celebrate them because that's what Paul does. And so this morning, Paul is going to talk about some of these Christian marks because as we, as we discussed last week, there's a lot of problems going on in Colossae. There's false teachings that are coming in. They're listening to people with, with false gospels. But the first thing Paul does is thank God for the work that he's doing in that church. Even in a church, it's got some problems. And so he shows us those marks. We're going to walk through those this morning. Faith in Christ. Hope in the eternal God. And love for the saints. And these are what marks the church in Colossae. And these are what marks true believers. And I have to be the first to admit, I am the most guilty of being pessimistic and critical of someone professing faith. I'm always trying to hold them to some theological standard or to uh, hold them to to some theological test that as a young Christian, they're not equipped to handle. And so we've got to be careful about being too critical when we see these initial signs of fruits in immature believers. But as Paul does, he celebrates it, then he also cultivates it. So like the, the farmer does not criticize the first shoots that come out of the ground. You're too small, you can't, you can't bear fruit, you're not good enough. But he waters them, he fertilizes them so that they will grow. And he knows that when there's evidence of growth, there will soon be fruit. Even if not all, but the fruit will come. And so it, it's right to be cautious. But if it's not true fruit, it will bear itself. But what we should do, as what Paul does, is we praise God for the work that he's doing. And then we grow it, and then we, we, we cultivate it, and we invest in it. Jesus gave us a helpful illustration and explanation of this. We're all familiar with the parable of the sower. So if you turn to Matthew chapter 13, I'm not going to read the parable itself, uh, but you've got four types of ground that these seeds are going to fall on. But it's the explanation that I think is helpful for us. So Matthew 13, I'm going to read 18 through 23. So when Jesus says in verse 18, hear the parable of the sower. He's saying, hear the parable of the sower explained. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns... This is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. We do not have the providence of God in our minds to know what soil we are dealing with. But in gospel ministry, we water it and we fertilize it and we encourage it. 
And those who have roots and those who have a good soil, they will grow over time. So I wonder whether I should do this or not, but I'm going to. As a good case study right now, anyone at all following what's going on with Kanye West? And trust me, you're as shocked as I am that I'm hearing the words Kanye West coming out of my mouth in the pulpit. Um, but this is a good case in point. Because he, he just released an album called Jesus is King. But for the past several years, he's produced some of the most vile, vulgar music that has ever been recorded. And now he's, complete, he's taking a complete 180. And so a lot of people are asking me, a lot of Christians are having conversations, and there's debate among Christians, what do we do with this? And so we need to pay attention to the fruit. And we need to think critically about these type of things. And not just for him, but he's a great case study because it's so public, and it's, and it's everywhere, and we should have discernment in these things. So I've been paying attention to the, to the details. Uh, when I first heard about this over the summer, his Sunday services and stuff like that, I just discounted it. But in his estimation, his conversion moment happened in April. And, and since then, I would definitely not recommend anything Kanye has ever said before April. And, and, and even now, to his credit, he says, I'm not a theologian. I'm a new convert. So if I misquote the word of God, forgive me. And this is a lot coming from him. And so I, I listen for key words. Faith in Christ. Repentance from my sins. Need for a savior. The things that Paul speaks about, we should listen for. Is there a desire? Is there a proclamation of my faith is in Christ and nothing in and of myself? Is there a hope in an eternal God and a hope in eternal life? Is there a love for the saints? And while he's kind of fumbling through this, and if any of us had to fumble through our first few moments as a Christian publicly, we would all be terrified. I know of solid pastors who he's seeking discipleship from. Conversations seeking modesty in his wife. That's another one that we, we never picture we would talk about. But it's so easy to be critical of these things. Now, uh, and even the, the look on his face is, is, is different. But what should we do in these cases? Yes, it's right to be cautious. Yes, to ask these questions. Thankfully, there are faithful men of God who are in his life asking him these questions. Pray for him. Celebrate that the name of Jesus is being proclaimed. Celebrate that the culture, for the first time, has to have a conversation about one of their idols, who's now saying he's setting apart all of the idols that he's worshipped his entire life. And so this is a good case study for us, but it's a good example in our lives. When we see people make professions of faith, hold them to that standard. Examine them in that. And when they proclaim Christ, celebrate it. But don't leave them there. Cultivate it. This is what Paul does. Because Paul is a good gospel farmer. The first thing he does is he praises God for what he's doing in the church at Colossae. But his next prayer, as we're going to get to next week, is... The cultivation of that. So this week, celebrating gospel fruit, thank you, God, that there is faith in Colossae. Thank you, God, that their hope is in eternal blessings. Thank you, God, that they have love for the saints. But next week, we're going to get into cultivating gospel fruit. Because Paul prays that they will not just remain in their immaturity, but they will have the fullness of Christ, that they will grow in maturity, that they will add to the fruit that is already there and mature. And so before getting into the person and work of, of Christ, which is the content of the gospel, that's where we're going to be in verses 15 through, through 20. This week, we're going to look at Paul's prayer life, thanking God for the gospel growth in them, in this body, and in the world. And then next week, we're going to get into Paul petitioning God for the fullness of gospel growth and continued Christian maturity in their, their lives. Then we'll get into the great Christological passage in Colossians. Uh, so if you would, open your Bibles to chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints... 
because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Our God, the one and only triune God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for the gospel that has bore fruit in our lives. Thank you for regenerating our hearts so that we can have faith in you. Thank you for the gospel promises that do not perish because of our sin, but go on for eternity and we place our hope in the treasures we lay up in heaven where we will be with our Savior forever in his new creation. Thank you for transforming our wicked hearts that would hate one another and kill our brother as Cain did to Abel apart from you but you have given us new hearts that can love one another because you first loved us. Help us to praise you. Help us to give you all the glory, honor, and praise, every bit of gospel growth that we see in lives. And help us, as Paul does, to intercede for others, to pray on behalf of others that they would come to know you that they would grow in knowledge of you, that they would mature and not remain in immaturity. Thank you for what you're doing in this body. Thank you for the saints. Faithful brothers and sisters, week in and week out, serve together, worship together, pray together, grow together, that you would protect us, that you would guard us, that you would bring us into maturity to the image of your Son. That we might declare your excellencies to a dark world. That we might boldly stand on the truth of the gospel. And that we might stand firm in the hope of our salvation. Our rock, our redeemer, Jesus Christ. It is in his name I pray. Amen. All right, so a couple observations before we get into the text. Um, one, if you're one of our Bible study students, the first thing we always look for is repeated words. You know, if you notice, 11 times in this passage, the word you comes up. Paul is thanking God, but he's directing it toward Colossae. I thank God for you. If you read through this again, you'll see it, and you'll see it as we walk through. What's the point of this? The point is, he's preparing the soil. He's about to tell them some hard news. He's about to tell them that you're, you're listening to false preachers. You're listening to false gospels. But you've got the truth. You've got the gospel. I've seen it in you. I've heard it in you. Remember this. I'm praying for you because I care for you. Because God has begun to work in you. Don't, don't give that up. So this you is repeated to prepare the soil so that they can receive the purpose of the letter. And again, as I said earlier, even though there are concerns in Colossae, we're going to spend all of chapter 2 talking about those concerns. The first thing God, uh, Paul does is thanks God. He celebrates the work that God is doing in them. So just, there, there is a lot in this text. Uh, and this is even more difficult because in the Greek, this is one sentence. Uh, and so it's a little difficult to navigate, but there's a lot we can pull out of this. And so I, I want to dig right into where we are. There's a lot that Paul is celebrating in Colossae, there's a lot for us to celebrate as Grace Fellowship as well. So beginning in verse 3, there's a format here. We always thank God. Now, we're not familiar with this culturally, but as I said last week, Paul follows the, the, the pattern of ancient letters. And in these ancient letters, it was customary for pagans to thank the gods. This is a, a long-standing practice. The, we have uh, remaining letters uh, in this format back to the 3rd century B.C., so some high Roman governor would write to some proconsul and say, I'm greeting you on, on behalf of so-and-so, and thanks be to this God because I have this wealth or whatever. So Paul follows the format, but he redeems it. He's very specific about the God he's talking about. He's not speaking about some little g gods, and that's why he's very particular about the words that he uses. 
And so what I want to do in verse 3, I want to spend a few minutes here. Because this is one of those simple introductory verses that we can just quickly gloss over and read right on because there's, there's meteor stuff after this. But I will argue there's at least seven things we can learn about prayer in this verse. So we're going to do that. If you come up with more than seven, gold star for you. But we're just going to talk about seven this morning. And so it's important to recognize that there is not one unimportant word in Scripture. And that especially within Paul, he's so precise that every word means something. Starting with the first word, we always thank God for you. We. What does that tell us? It tells us that Paul is not some rogue apostle on his own. He introduces the letter by saying, it is Paul and Timothy, our brother, who write this to you. We, Paul prays with the saints, for the saints. We, Paul stands with other faithful brothers, those who are coming and going to him in his prison cell in Rome. And we pray, we pray for bodies. Even though Paul may have never visited Colossae, he prays for them. And not just by himself, but the saints pray in agreement for the body of Christ. Two, we always thank God. So when? This is literally at all times. It was customary within Jewish culture to have a prayer in the morning and a prayer in the evening, at least. We always, we always, Paul is praying for them without ceasing. Paul cares for them so much that it's not just one prayer that he prays and it's done and he moves on. His heart is so broken over what he's hearing about the teaching in the church that he always prays for them. We always thank God. The third thing we see here is Paul begins with thanks. Paul doesn't begin with his laundry list of why am I in a jail cell? Why don't the the people hear the, the gospel and let me free? Why don't you remove this thorn from my side? He begins with thanks. We always thank God. And this is a great pattern from Paul. To remind us that the first things first is we have so much to thank God for before we even can think about getting to ourselves. He is thanking God. He is the God of the harvest. He is the one who brings the fruit. He is the one who is working within the church at Colossae. The fourth thing, who is he thanking God, not just any God, not any Greco-Roman pagan God, but God, the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's very specific about who he's praying to, who their God is, as should we. Now, we live in a culture where people throw around gods, and they, they throw around the term God, which loosely means many different things to many different people. We need to be as concerned about the God that we speak of as Paul is. Are we speaking about the God of the Bible? Are we speaking about the true and living God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? That brings us to our fourth thing, our. Paul connects himself to his readers here. I'm not just praying to my God and you pray to your God, but we are united to our God, to our Lord, through Jesus Christ. Paul connects himself to his readers by the word our. Six. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can Paul pray? How can, God, how can Paul come before God? How can Paul always intercede for them? Because of Jesus Christ. Because our Lord is our mediator. It is because of the finished work of Christ. It is because he is our high priest and he intercedes for us that we can pray, that I can pray. I am praying to God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. And number seven, why? Why does he thank God? Why does he go before them? For you. It's amazing to see Paul's pastoral heart here. All of this, this entire letter, this great thanksgiving in God is because of what he's doing in you. Paul is praising God for what he's doing in others before he thinks about himself. I love that selfless pattern that we see in Paul. He goes to God on behalf of others. Little concern for himself and his own situation. He's more concerned for the purity and the orthodoxy of the church in Colossae. And it's important for us to think about, are our prayers this intentional? Do we think about the God that we pray to? Do we think about why we pray? Do we think about how we pray? Are we thanking him? 
Are we praying for others? Or are our prayers a mini Christmas list of everything that we want and can't wait to hang up and get on to other things? Are we as intentional in thinking through the way that we pray as Paul is? So I've been thinking about that a lot as I've prepared for this message and thinking about what an honor it is to pray for you. What an honor it is to thank God for the work that I see in so many of you. And praise God for the gospel fruit. And I'm so thankful for what God is doing here. And I want to encourage all of you to do the same thing. Our prayers should be saturated with prayers of thanksgiving for what he's doing in this church and for what he's doing around the globe, as Paul does. So now we get into the why, verse 4. Why is Paul praising God? Why is he thanking him for when he prays? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Because we heard... Paul's whole point for praying is this great report that there is faith in Colossae. The gospel that I preach in Ephesus has made its way to Colossae. The gospel is going out. Thank you, God. Their faith was known and it was obvious enough for Epaphras to give that report to Paul. This is real faith. What makes a Christian? What marks a church? It's not a building or a particular denomination, or a particular style of worship, but it is faith in Christ. That's what Paul celebrates, and that's what we should celebrate. It's nothing external but faith. Remember, he addressed this letter to the faithful brothers in verse 2, the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Many of you are familiar with the, the, the great gospel text in Romans 1. I love Romans 1, 16 and 17, the power of the gospel. But look what it says about faith here, and it helps us understand Paul's writing. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is from faith for faith. The faith of Paul in Christ proclaimed the gospel so that there would be faith in the nations. And so when he thanks God for their faith, he knows that it is a fruit of the gospel. The gospel is for those who will come to faith and those who are of faith. Because the gospel speaks from faith to faith. This is a language for the people of faith. And he thanks God that now they share that same language and they can hear the words that that Paul is speaking to them. Without their faith, they cannot. And this is not just any, any regular faith to say, I have faith in, in Christ, and I'm going to move on with the rest of my life. This faith has an outpouring. When we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. This is not just some generic kumbaya love. This is love for the saints. There is a transformation that happens within the believer who puts his faith in Christ to say, I love the saints. I love people who look different than me, who come from different backgrounds than me. I love other wretched sinners because I know that I am loved, even though I am a wretched sinner. Our union with Christ unites us to the saints. And so Paul sees these things as going hand in hand. How could they not? The outpouring of the the vertical relationship, our relationship with the holy, triune, eternal God should pour out into our relationship with those who he sent his son to die on the cross for. The reconciliation of us to God should reconcile us to one another. And that is a true mark of a Christian. It's not just faith in Christ as 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 a pure verbal proclamation, but it is a change of heart that gives you a love and desire to love the saints, love the ones he loves. And he says, love all the saints. Not just the ones who look like us and talk like us and think like us. But all the saints. Those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Those who are hidden in Him. And he's writing to the saints. There's a particular commendable love for the saints. And a lot of times we we take this and brush this in, in, in broad strokes. But this is for the church. He doesn't even mention outsiders until chapter 4. This is for the saints. Every one of them. 
And I'm thankful that when I talk to people who visit, and I talk to people who, when they decide to join our, our church, what stuck out about us? Why do you want to be here? And so often, I hear, I see the way you love one another. I see the way that you encourage one another. I've never had that. I've never seen that. I, I want that. I'm glad to be a church that is known for our love for the saints. Amen. And how is it that they can have this faith and have this love? Verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Their hope is not in themselves. Their hope is not in this world. That's why they can have radical faith and radical love. Because they are not the object of their hope. This world is not the object of their hope. Romans, again, is helpful here. Romans chapter 5, coming off of the heels of touching on justification in chapter 4. In chapter 5, Paul connects faith to hope, and I think this is helpful. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That is the hope of the Christian, the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that our suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. You notice this? That is the hope of the saints that allows them to endure, connected to their faith, which produces more hope. This is a hope-regenerating process. That as we put our hope in our Lord, even in our sufferings, it produces more hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Our hope has been given to us by the Holy Spirit because as the Holy Spirit has regenerated our hearts to give us faith. And this is a beautiful thing because by definition, faith is not something that you can touch or see. You know, Hebrews 11.1 tells us it's the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. That's why Paul can connect it to this, this heavenly hope. Their perspective is eternal. It's not based on themselves, or their circumstances, or the world around them. But he's rejoicing because they have faith, and their hope is in what is laid up for them in their eternal inheritance. But think about it. How hard is it to have faith in Christ when you're putting in trust, you're putting your trust into the things of this world. How hard is it to have faith in Christ when your hope is in whether you get the job or not? Whether your hope is in whether she says yes or not? Whether your hope is in what someone will, will, will think about you, how someone will respond to you? What's, what, what's my career look like? What's my family going to look like? What's this going to look like? How much trust can you have in your Savior if your hope is wrapped up in this world? And at the same time, how hard is it to love the saints if you're looking for favor and glory among the people of this earthly kingdom? If our hope is in the eternal things, the things that cannot pass away, the things that are laid up for us and stored up for us in heaven, we will keep this world in its proper perspective. And so why is he talking about this? Why does he have to explain this to them again? Because he's setting the foundation to address these false teachers. Because what these false teachers want to do is they want to emphasize earthly things. They want to emphasize human traditions. They want to emphasize worldly wisdom. And if you're so consumed with that, you will take your eyes off of eternal things. Paul is reminding them about what is laid up for you. Now hope, and we know our eternal heavenly inheritance is a future thing. But Paul actually speaks about it in the present tense. This in, in the Greek is a, it's a present participle. It just means it's, a, it's an ongoing action. This is laid up for you in heaven. It is, it is held for you in heaven. It is not going anywhere. It, is, it will always be there. It's reserved and it's stored up for a specific occasion. So this is a heavenly inheritance, which Paul says is yours now, even though you haven't taken possession of it yet. It is yours. There's a foretaste of the eternal things that Paul is reminding them of. Don't take your eyes off of this. Don't take your eyes off of what is, what is being held for you in heaven. The beauty of the already, not yet in this. It is already yours. You possess it now. 
spiritually, even though you have not taken hold of it yet. And that is your hope. That is what you fix your eyes on, what cannot be taken away. Because the false teachers want to rob them of this assurance. The false teachers want to say, you need to add more, you need to do more. The promises of God are not enough. This is why Paul must lay this foundation here. Christian hope is a beautiful thing. But how do we get to that hope? How do we get to that faith? How do we get to eternal security? How do we get to the, the love for the saints? Through hearing the gospel. Verse, at the uh, second half of verse 5. Man, I'm only in verse 5. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Romans 10 walks us through this. Believe with our hearts, confess with our mouths. Because we have heard of the truth, because someone preaches it. This is what, what Paul's getting at here. He's, he's, he's working backwards. I'm praising your faith. I'm praising your love. I'm praising your hope. And I know that that got there from the gospel. It was the gospel that did that in your life. You heard this gospel message first, and it is the truth of the gospel. It is the word of truth that leads to this hope and leads to this faith and leads to this love. These come together when the, when the gospel takes root, when the gospel message has found its home, has found the ears of the sheep. The gospel is the word of the truth. This is emphatic here. Of that you have heard in the word of the truth. The truth, the one and only truth, the good news that bears fruit. This is the power unto salvation. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 1. This is important for us to hear. You know, people love messages of hope and peace and love. The Bible has no message of hope, peace, love, faith apart from Jesus Christ. There is no generic hope in the Bible. There is no generic peace. There is no generic love. And if we accept these things and we're not, we're, we're not careful, we can get drawn into this worldly mysticism that just speaks of rainbows and, and, and butterflies if you just think positive thoughts. But this is not the gospel. And sadly, I hear so many people claiming to be Christians saying these things. It is only the message of the cross. It is only the message of the Redeemer, the Lamb of God. Dying on a cross for the sake of the redeemed, rising again, that they will have new life in him. This is the message that brings hope. This is the message that brings faith. This is the message that brings peace and love. And there is none outside of that. It is just a facade. It is only fake. It is only that message. It is only that gospel, that truth, that can truly produce faith. And that's why Paul is very particular here. Your faith, your hope, and your love are in the gospel. And that gospel had to come, verse 6, which has come to you, as indeed, in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. It's good news for Colossae, and it's good news for the whole world. The gospel is a living word. When it comes, it brings life, and there is life within it. The gospel has come indeed. You know how it's come indeed? Because you have faith, because you have hope, and you have love. The gospel has taken root. Where it is taught and heard, there is life. But how do you know if the gospel has come indeed? Because it is bearing fruit and increasing. Bearing fruit, the word means multiplying. It is multiplying. It is spreading out in its scope. It is also increasing. So it is maturing in its depth. The gospel not only goes out, but it also goes deep as well. The gospel. This is our kind of focus verse. That's why the, the sermon is titled what it is. Because this is the focus of both sections. This section, verse 6, and it's parallel in verse 10. Here's the initial marks of the gospel here. The initial marks of the gospel in the world and in you, it is bearing fruit and increasing. But if you skip down to verse 10, we'll pick up in, in verse 9, we'll get here more next week. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So Paul's praising God, but he's also interceding. Asking that you may be filled... Uh, with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
This is the focus. And these words should ring a bell to us. These sound familiar. Bear fruit and increase. Sound like anything else we know in Scripture. What is the first creation mandate given to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. The gospel through the second Adam, the first Adam failed miserably. His being fruitful and multiplying was to bring God's creation out into the whole world that God would be glorified in the efforts of his hands. But he failed. He transgressed. That's why we needed a second Adam who would never transgress. And this second Adam, through him, through his kingdom come to earth, through his gospel message, now the creation mandate can be fulfilled. We can be fruitful and and, and multiply. We can bear fruit and increase because of what he does in us. And so we are the fruits of his labor on the cross. His works produce our righteousness, and then they become fruit for eternal life. And so in this, the bearing fruit and increasing connects God's plan of of redemption, and we are seeing the fullness of it right here and now. Colossae is an example. We are an example in every church that is rooted in the gospel, that has faith in Christ, hope in the eternal promises of God, and love for the saints. They are being fruitful and multiplying an increase that cannot be taken away forever. So how does the gospel bear fruit and increase? It's not just words thrown about in the air. So it's happening in the whole world as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. This is important. It's not just Hearing, we have to understand how how we define hearing. It's not just hits our our ears and bounces right back off. It's hearing and understanding. It it is heard by us, but it's also retained by us. This word for understand means to kind of witness, to, to have the evidences of. It is taken and fully comprehended into the mind of the believer, and it transforms the heart. The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing because they hear it and they understand it. You know, it's interesting, I didn't realize this until this morning, but these are the same two terms that Jesus uses in Matthew 13. Those that fall on the good soil, those are the ones who hear and understand. The gospel was proclaimed to all four of those those soils, the path, the rocky. They all heard, but they didn't understand. There There wasn't fertile soil. And so Paul continues on what Jesus teaches. We need to proclaim the gospel. We need to hear it, but we need to understand it. It needs to take root in our hearts and in our minds. And that's what's going on here. That's what Paul is praising God for because it has done that. What is taking root in their hearts and minds? The grace of God and truth. I think this might be the greatest uh, small, just succinct gospel description I've seen in scripture the grace of God in truth that's that's a sermon in itself and I wish I could but I'm not going to the grace of God in truth think about that statement the grace of God only from God can we receive grace it is grace it is it is unmerited favor it is the mercy of God a righteous God toward unrighteous sinners it is the grace of God that is the gospel it is the grace of God and how do we know that's the gospel the true gospel. There is only one way, one truth, one life. One gospel. Not all these other false gospels. You can't have grace apart from God. You can't have gospel apart from truth. You can't have truth mixed with error. It must be the unadulterated true gospel. The grace of God proclaimed in truth. That is the gospel. And we need to guard that gospel. We need to guard it with our very lives. Because no error can save. No falsehood can save. No false God can save. The grace of God and truth is what we proclaim day in and day out. It's what we preach week in and week out. It's what we sing week in and week out. And what we thank God for week in and week out. Because that's what brought sinners like us before the throne of a holy God. Amen? That gospel, the grace of God and truth, the same gospel, verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved brother. Just as Paul is connecting the dots here. Epaphras 
who's now standing before me in my cell telling me about you, he's got the true gospel. He's the gospel messenger you should trust. Don't trust these other people. Because the same gospel I'm confirming to you right now, hope in eternal promises of God, faith in Jesus Christ, love for the saints. Epaphras has that gospel. He gave you that gospel. Don't believe someone else. So he's confirming the ministry of Epaphras right here. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servants. They learned it. They actually learned it. They heard it and they understood it. This is not something that they didn't understand. They, they got it. But now there's a temptation to listen to these new preachers who's got this, this new stuff. I've got this, this new message you really need to hear. Paul's saying, Epaphras gave you the true gospel. You need no other gospel. What's interesting here, the word for, for learner, the same root for disciple. It's someone who's, who's, who's truly learning and following. These are marks of, of disciples of Christ in Colossae. From Epaphras, the means and example of the faith in Colossae. And then again, Paul connects him to Epaphras and him to Colossae. Epaphras, our beloved brother. The mafia have this thing, it's a a friend of ours. That, that means that that's, that's code for they, they belong to us. We, we, we have the same allegiances. We have, we, we have the same DNA. This is what Paul is saying here. He's our beloved brother. Not just mine, but yours. Not just yours, but mine. We are connected through the same gospel. Listen to him. Trust him. He is a beloved and fellow servant. This beloved comes from the same root as agape. He is loved because Christ loved him, because he's one of the saints, and he's proven so because he's faithful. Paul begins with commending their love for the saints, but reminds them, there's a beloved saint, one of, one of your very own, who's coming to me now, telling me that you've, you've got some concerning things going on. Remember, he loves you, because he came all the way here to visit me to tell me about you, and to ask me to intercede, be out of love. And we, we describe that by the, the terms that Paul uh, gives to him. Epaphras, our fellow servant. This word is translated many different ways, but it's, it's doulos. If you're familiar with that, it's the term for slave. Keep that in mind. It's the same term that's used in chapter 3. It's translated bondservant. There's different purposes for this. But it's, it's, it's the same word. It's, and so when we think about slaves in a different context, Epaphras is a faithful slave of Christ. He's a bond servant. He is, he is not slave to his earthly master. He's not a slave in that sense. He's a slave in a spiritual sense. And it's a good thing. He's beloved and faithful in that slavery to Christ because he is a good and faithful master. He is also a faithful minister of Christ. Uh, and we get this thing in, in our culture like minister is a separate office within the church. We don't get that biblically. Biblically, Everyone who is in Christ is a minister of Christ. We are ministers of reconciliation. We are ministers of the gospel. This word here is just a common word for servant. Same word where we get deacon from. He's just a servant. He is a slave of Christ, and he is a servant of the church. He's a faithful minister of Christ. So putting that together, a minister of the gospel. He is a slave of Christ who faithfully serves the saints out of love. Epaphras is such a great commendable example of that. A slave of Christ who, who faithfully serves the saints out of love. That is what a minister of the gospel is. And Epaphras is doing that well. And he's doing it on your behalf. He's telling them you should be thankful for Epaphras. Don't so quickly listen to another gospel and discount what he's told you. He's doing this on your behalf. He traveled hundreds of miles over land and over sea to come to me. He's doing this on your behalf because he loves you. And so I just want to encourage us. Do we thank God for those who have ministered to us on our behalf? Do we thank God for those who shared the gospel with us? We thank God for those who invest in us, who encourage us in the faith, who correct us when we need it, who invest in us, who are ministers of the gospel in our lives. And as we learn from Paul's prayerful example here in his exhortation to the Colossians, I encourage you to do the same thing. Thank God for who works in your life. Thank God for who invests in you. 
Thank God for who gave you the gospel so that now you can rejoice in the gospel fruit in, in your life. And so then Paul connects his connection to Epaphras. Verse 8. And he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. He has made known. Paul or Epaphras is their representative. He's a great intercessor for them. He reports to Paul because he had first reported Paul's gospel teaching to them. So Paul or Epaphras is in a true sense interceding for them, bringing the gospel to Colossae and bringing an update to Paul so that Paul can correct their doctrine in his apostolic authority. And, he, and this messenger has made known to Paul your love in the Spirit. Paul begins with, I commend you and I praise God for your faith and your love. And he ends again in, in love. We saw in 1 Corinthians the greatest of these faith, hope, and love is love. And so Paul commends that for the, in them twice. But it is only possible in the Spirit. It is only possible by the Spirit working in us. It is only possible by the Spirit changing hearts. It is only possible by the Spirit who grants faith, the Spirit who grants hope that we love one another. And it is a mark of a true Christian. This is why it breaks my heart every time I hear someone say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I just don't go to church or associate with, with Christians or have much to do with Christians at all. How can you do that? How can you say I love Christ, but I don't love the church? How can I say that the one who died for me also died for you, yet I want nothing to do with you? This is what was so impressed upon Paul, that they had love for one another in the Spirit and united them. But this also brings in the great Trinitarian nature of this passage. Faith in Christ. Thanking God, the eternal promises of God in the Spirit. Paul clearly gives glory to the triune God from beginning to end and closes this up very nicely. So we know that in complete agreement, faith in the Son, through the providence of the Father, in the power of the Spirit, is how this gospel fruit is being accomplished in Colossae. So next week, we're going to get to um, cultivating gospel fruit uh, and Paul's prayer for continued maturity. But as we close up, I just want to ask a few questions and just think practically from this, this passage. You know, we think about how do we know that someone is, is a Christian? We need to have discernment and ask good questions. Do we see the fruit of gospel ministry? Do we see gospel increase in their lives? Do we see evidence of faith in Christ? Not just empty proclamation, but true faith where their, their life and their deeds and their, their hopes are rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Do we see evidence of their hope in the promises of God? Do we see an eternal perspective? Do we see someone who is unshaken by the difficulties of this world because their identity is laid up in heaven? Their inheritance will never be taken away. Nothing anyone can do on this planet can take them away from the love of God. And is there love for all the saints? It's a good questions to ask. Because if you ask many people, they will call themselves Christians. Do they love Christians? Are they in, do they desire fellowship with the saints? It is so easy to tell someone, to tell if someone's a Christian, if they can't be away from the saints. I haven't, I haven't spoken with another Christian, haven't fellowshiped in, in a few days. I feel starved. I feel like something's missing. And I love that each and every week I see most of you, 90% of you. Each and every week we come because we want to hear the word of God. We want to sing the praises, but we love the saints. We need to be encouraged. We need to be challenged. We need to bear each other's burdens and be alongside one another. This is a great mark of gospel fruit. And do we celebrate it? It's so easy to be critical, so we think about what's, what's missing, but we should be a celebratory people. We should be thanking God all the time. And so as we thank God, think about your own prayer life this week. What can Paul teach us about what it means to pray? What can Paul teach us about what it means to approach the true and living God? Do you thank Him for His grace in truth? Do you thank Him for the work that you see in yourself and in others and throughout the world? And do you thank Him for those who minister to you? those who invest in you, 
those who have been ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life and continue to encourage you like Epaphras did in Colossae. And then just the final question. Do you believe in the power of the gospel? Enough to share it with those who have no fruit or those who have just a little bit of a fruit and encourage them and know that it is the power of the gospel. It is not you. It is not your ability to convince them of anything. They're not going to die or, or, or live because you stumble over your words. But the gospel itself is the power to raise the dead to life, to bring the life to, 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 to maturity, to preserve the saints until the end. Let us be people who are rooted in the truth of the gospel as Paul desires for Colossae. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you. We praise you. I could stand here all day, all week, all month, all year, and could not cover all of the things that we should be thankful for to you. But in our few words and our limited capacity, we praise you. We praise you because you are the God who is graceful towards sinners. You are the God who saves and saves for eternity. You are the God who saves to the utmost. You are the God whose gospel is powerful, whose word does not come back void, who when it takes hold, it bears fruit and it increases and it spreads. We praise you for that, God. We thank you for our faith. It is such a simple thing, but such a glorious thing that we get to believe and put our trust in, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are united through him. We thank you for love. Because this world has many songs written about love and so many things that are directed toward an earthly love, but we know true love. We know the love of someone who would lay down their life for a sinner. We know the God who shed his love on his people so that we might set our love back to you and on one another. Lord, I pray that we continue to do this well. Thank you for the assurance that we have in Christ. We are blessed because of who we are in Christ. And that can never be taken away. It can never be shaken because our citizenship is, an eternal, is in an eternal kingdom that is held for us forever in glory. And for this we praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.